Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investing, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. Before we get to the podcast, I'd like to share an update about something that the RFI Foundation has been working on since the conclusion of the RFI Summit that we'll announce later this week. It's called the CEDIT Initiative, in reference to our goal from the initiative to grow trust between the financial industry and society. Our objective with the initiative is to help financial institutions build trust with civil society and the public by tracking, monitoring, and sharing their commitments to sustainable and inclusive finance. The CEDIT initiative will be a database secured by blockchain that we believe will provide an enhancement to make existing commitments and actions by financial institutions work better. We'll be announcing the initiative on the sidelines of the G20 on Friday, September 21st in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and we're still accepting new signatories. To get more information or to become a signatory, please visit the website bit.ly slash join CDIT, and CDIT is spelled C-D-I-T. Getting back to the podcast, the purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. This month, we're interviewing Diane Schrader, founder and CEO of Third Act. Third Act is a fintech working to drive resiliency in communities with non-debt financing of energy efficiency and renewable energy investments. Third Act was one of the three winners of the Support Disruption for Good Challenge at the RFI Summit. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the RFI podcast, Diane. Could you share your background uh, and the background for Third Act, uh, how you came to start it, and, and what Third Act offers? Sure, sure. So, um, so my career began in tech in 3D computer animation and visualization. I then transitioned kind of to tech in finance over a decade ago. Um, being here in Silicon Valley, the other thing that I've done along the way is advise startups, particularly those that are mission-oriented or involved in sustainability. So it was about, um, it was about I guess, four years ago that I began to connect the dots. Um, I ended up dedicating about a year full-time to researching kind of the connection between big data and finance and sustainability. And what I discovered is that there's an enormous gap in um, all three areas in small commercial real estate. The first is that um, there, was, there was very little data. The second is that there wasn't much finance and the certain area, excuse me, the, the last part, there certainly wasn't much um, sustainability. So um, if you look a little bit more closely at um, this situation, it turns out that most of commercial real estate in the United States is small. Some data that we do have is that 72% of the commercial building stock in the United States um, has buildings under 10,000 square feet. The other thing that we know is that most of these buildings are um, over 50 years old. So they were built before there were energy standards and even safety standards in the building codes. And then most of these properties are owned by people, not corporations. So it turns out that um, when it's time to improve their properties, these owners have a really hard time taking on debt to do so. And so what they end up doing is um, deferring as much maintenance for those buildings as they possibly can. 
This leaves these buildings to be highly inefficient. And um, we now have data um, to back up um, this inefficiency, particularly that these small commercial buildings consume more energy than every other category of real estate. And that's something that we as a company have, um, have been focused on. As a matter of fact, it's one of the areas that we, um, we really designed our, our products for. So on the flip side of this, we have investors and investors have had little to no access um, to this market. And the reason why is because there have been very few institutional products um, for that. So that's kind of the, the backdrop and such. So we founded Third Act um, to connect those dots. Um, you can think of Third Act as a real estate fintech. Um, we applied data-driven models to create non-debt financing for small commercial real estate. We're also a public benefit corporation, and our public benefit statement is that we drive resiliency in communities through better buildings. That means that every project we fund reinforces our mission. Um, so our first fund encourages the adoption of energy efficiency and clean energy technologies, and um, this is how this works. A small commercial property owner gets to exchange a small percentage of their property's future sale proceeds for the funding of improvements now. For these owners, this means that they don't need to take on debt. There are no periodic payments, and if there are any benefits, such as energy savings, tax incentives, and utility rebates, they and their tenants get to keep all of that. The investors uh, are looking for their return. Where does that, where does that come from in the, if there's not a debt or periodic payments? So when the, the property owners sign up for our financing, they're exchanging a small portion of their future sell proceeds for the funding of these improvements. That means that when their properties sell, a small portion of that sell proceed will go back to the investors. We then bundle these projects into portfolios for institutional investors who can finally access the small commercial market. And so for these investors, rather than taking on the risk of investing in a single large core piece of real estate, they can access long-term cash flows from micro-investments across a pool of smaller properties. And so that, that provides a distinction then in the financing model compared to other energy efficiency improvement financing because there's not a debt component. Uh, what, it, what does that provide uh, to Third Act in terms of uh, opportunities that would not otherwise be available uh, for, for institutional investors well, for institutional investors, they just haven't had access to this market. When we talk about um, access, institutions need standards, and the small commercial market has been seen as being quite fragmented and hard to access. So there certainly have been loan products. There have been mortgages. Um, there's certainly the commercial uh, mortgage-backed securities industry and such. Um, and those have been the standard ways for these investors to access um, the small commercial However, um, most investors haven't actually participated in owning any of these assets directly. So they're not generally the ones providing the loans um, to the small commercial property owners to buy these properties. And certainly when it comes to improvements, they really haven't been backing those as well. And so there has been an enormous opportunity gap for the institutions to otherwise participate in this area. And I, I think the other thing is that, um, again, seeing the, the vastness of these um, small commercial properties is something that I think a lot of people uh, kind of take for granted. A lot of people, when they think about commercial real estate, they think really big. So they think about the really big apartment buildings and really big office buildings, you know, industrial manufacturing and all of that. Um, but there was an enormous wave of 
development in the United States, particularly after World War II. Um, in the 50s and 60s, the credit markets for the first time were opening up for, um, for individuals and small business to begin to participate in the development of small businesses. And those businesses needed essentially the, the buildings to operate in. And then we had the urbanization um, movements and such as well, where people were coming more into cities and investors could, um, of course, invest and develop the buildings for multifamilies and such to live in. And it was really, um, you know, the developments that happened back in those days that are leading to some of the opportunities and such that we see today. And so I think that what we're doing as a company is just providing these investors greater access to that market. And in in terms of the characteristics of the of the buildings that are in this market, you said that there hadn't been a lot of institutional capital going into it, and there had there had been a shortage of of uh, access to financing for the property owners themselves. Is that because there's higher risk? How risky is it in ter- uh, for the investors in terms of that percentage of a sale price being available when the property eventually sells? Well, I think that for the, um, the investor, it hasn't been about risk as much as it has been about access. So if you look at um, how this market has performed, even as we look back, not only through the most recent financial crisis, we can also go back in through the dot-com boom, we can go back into the 80s, we can go through a number of different financial cycles. And you can see that the small commercial um, buildings, both on the light commercial, when we think about regular use, office space, retail, and all of that, and then the multifamily spaces, they performed very well. So it's really not about the performance, it has much more to do with access. And for the property owner, um, it, the, the, uh, the problem with investing in their properties really comes back to the cost of debt. So um, out in the market right now, there is um, a product that is offered through the SBA, the Small Business Administration, where they will put guarantees behind loans that are offered through conventional banks. These guarantees then allow for the property owners to access these loans at, um, at a lesser cost than would otherwise be available. So if we take a standard $50,000 loan, um, when you add on to that the, the cost of the origination fee, which is roughly about 10% of that loan, so in this case it would be about $5,000, and then the, um, the cost of the debt so 6% um, would be considered, a 6% um, fixed would be considered a fantastic loan to get on that product. You're really taking a $50,000 new roof and that um, is going to cost the property owner about $74,000. And so with debt being that expensive, you also add to it the fact that, um, that this kind of debt is, um, is also impacting that property owner's personal credit. So this debt is, um, is attached to the property owner and not the property, meaning that if the property owner's car breaks down and they need a new roof at the same time, it's quite a personal choice as to how they're going to use their personal credit you know, for these purchasing decisions. And so um, the, um, the scenario that a property owner has to go through on the small commercial side is much, much different than, um, than the scenario that a large commercial property owner would have to go through. So it really is the cost of debt um, that, that is the problem for the small commercial property owner. Interesting. And, and 
you've replaced this periodic payment uh, every time the property sells in lieu of a, a debt. Uh, how how have you explored the overlap between that and Islamic finance, and how uh, likely that to be Sharia compliant? Well, so it's interesting if you think about um, our product. Um, what we're doing is we are aggregating these projects together in such a way that we look at how the um, the underlying performance of an entire portfolio would then. Um, drive investor returns. And so we take no controlling interest in any of the properties. We look at, um, at you know, when these properties sell, the, the propensity to sell, the amount of appreciation in the market that we would otherwise see, and then we can design products to meet investor needs. And so when it comes to the, the Sharia market, we actually discovered um, that we could be Sharia compliant quite by accident. I was in Asia um, the year before last, and we were meeting with investors there. And one of the investors suggested that we would be compliant. And I, I really didn't understand or appreciate what that, what that meant. So I came back here to the Silicon Valley. We have quite a few universities nearby. And I approached them looking for um, explanations. And I really couldn't find any local sources. And so through friends within my, my financial network, I was connected to some, some parties in London who then connected me to the Shrew Review Board in Bahrain, and it was really there that um, that we learned more about how um, the uh, the certification process works and what it takes to be certified and such. And um, and I think that for us, it it was very um, natural to see our our products fitting within um, within those practices, particularly because there is this notion of a shared outcome, where both the investor and the property owner is sharing in the outcome of um, of their their buildings and such and so i think that that was one of the things that we saw great alignment with um, certainly the the um, notion of debt and um, and interest rates and all of that was one of the areas that i think is most um, is most commonly seen but it was kind of fun when it came to the review um, particularly by the scholars because as we were told that our review process might have taken a little bit longer than what um, they found through other mechanisms that they looked at, in part because it was so novel, in part because it was also so simple, but that it also um, was able to encourage their own scholars to go back to the book, so to speak, and to uh, you know understand and have a deeper appreciation of um, of what it means to have um, have these standards in place. So. Um, I think that it was really just an alignment of, of interest. Now we worked out some of the mechanics and such along the way, but um, but it has been far more of a natural process than I think that some people might might otherwise see. And I, I guess I find that it also aligns with our overall mission of being inclusive because we can be inclusive not only to property owners, but we can be far more inclusive to investors as well. That's interesting uh, in the process that you've gone through with Sharia Review Bureau, who have also uh, separately uh, certified uh, Stellar, uh, the uh, blockchain network that you use as being Sharia compliant. How, how have you integrated blockchain uh, technology into the process that, that you go through and, and what benefit does it have to you and to the investors and to the property owners? Yeah, you know, I am. I'm so happy for Stellar. I encourage them to um, to go through that certification. And so, 
it's um, it's quite rewarding to see that. And um, and I think that what's interesting to me is when you see all these different pieces of a puzzle come together on their own independently, it makes everything just feel that much more meant to be. So I'm quite happy for Stellar. Um, as far as the blockchain aspects go, um, we started exploring blockchain, um, I guess you would say in early 2016, and it was around that summer that we began to see conceptually these pieces come together. So as a company, when the, the company was founded, um, we had technical requirements, um, three main areas, certainly security, um, durability, and scalability. And we saw that blockchain could conceptually meet those technical requirements. So that was really the approach that we took with blockchain. But then after that, if you can imagine two summers ago and where the technology was and who the different um, players were in the space, there was a lot of evolution still to be had. And we began our due diligence uh, first within the private blockchains, then within the public blockchains. And what we saw initially was that um, we weren't finding that the blockchains were where they needed to be for us. And so we, we actually got to the point after a year of deliberating within the space that we might actually have to give it up. And um, it was kind of funny because out of the blue, uh, random parties kept pointing me to Stellar. And it got to be this, this point where this drum kept beating. And we're very fortunate to have them almost in our own backyard. So I was able to meet with both um, the founder and their team. And again, it felt like a very, very natural fit, both uh, from a technical perspective as well as from a cultural perspective. And so getting back to the, the point of, um, of um, our technical requirements, this first requirement of um, security, um, blockchains by their nature are designed to be secure. They're designed to be these mutable records and such of, of transactions over time. And Stellar has demonstrated that um, they were founded in in 2014, launched their blockchain in 2015, and they've been um, they've been unhackable. They've been secure ever since. And when you're in financial services, that's um, obviously of utmost importance. The second, of course, is um, is durability. Again, over time, um, they've proven themselves um, not only to be durable but at institutional scale. So I believe this year. They, um, they will have over um, a half a billion of transactions completed successfully on the network. So that's, um, that's super important to us. And then if you look at the, um, the contracts that, um, that we have with property owners and with our investors, these are long-term 20 to 30 year contracts. And so understanding that a blockchain will be durable um, for, for decades is tremendously important to us as well. And so we strongly believe that Stellar is on track um, to perform in that way. And then um, one really important point that I think distinguishes what we're doing from other parties within the financial industry, and I think will end up driving more parties towards blockchain, is that fundamentally we believe that blockchain can remove much of the friction and the costs of administrating funds. And so for us, rather than pocket these benefits, we let this value accrue directly to investors. So that means that within the fund um, industry, typically there's uh, what they call the two and 20, which is the performance and management fees that fund administrators often charge their investors. We believe very strongly that by removing, again, um, these administrative costs, that we don't need to charge these investors these fees. That means that, um, that the investors, of course, get to keep more of their returns 
which we believe then um, will drive them to, to further investment, with, which will, of course, only scale our offerings, and of course, will also scale our impact. So blockchain is a huge component of that. And just to give a little bit of background, could you explain sort of where the, where the cultural alignment between how Stellar approaches uh, the blockchain and how it uh, works in a different way than other than, than Bitcoin or Ethereum um, and how that, uh, how that overlaps with the public benefit uh, statement that, that Third Act works uh, around? Well, one of the, the foremost things is that when we work with investors, of course, we have to have the confidence um, of investors that um, not only are, are we, of course, performing at our best, but we're also choosing partners that, uh, that do so as well. So Stellar is a, um, a Delaware nonprofit, and that is something that, um, that institutional investors understand very well. Um, Delaware nonprofits as institutions have been around for a very long time, and we're certainly um, very familiar with these different types of entities that, that, are, um, that are incorporated and such within Delaware. So that's, 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 one, um, that's one area. The other is that um, I think that Stellar is, um, from a culture perspective, very humble. If you look at what they do, um, they kind of remind me of just that, that slow and steady um, type of entity that is, is actually out just doing it. So rather than um, beating a drum and being kind of in the forefront of all the news for better and worse, they're, they're out there just doing the good work that they do. And I think that what you see over time is of course that compounds and it's developed into not only a very you know, solid blockchain, but if you got to know their team and such in the way that we have, um, you just see the, um, again, the, the values and such that they embody as a whole. So Stellar was founded um, initially to provide um, I would say low, um, low transaction fees to parties that need high frequency transactions, particularly in the areas of remittance. And if you look at um, remittance as an industry, this has been somewhat, somewhat predatory to the parties that need to, um, to send monies overseas. And so um, developing a product to serve that market at its core I think also then has evolved to, to solve other markets that of course have the same technical and I would say also cultural requirements. And so um, I believe very strongly that um, by setting themselves up as a nonprofit, you know, as an entity that is well understood within um, at least the US corporate and nonprofit structures and such, um, it has um, helped them grow slow and steadily, which again has has created a tremendous foundation now for other companies to build upon. That's great. The block applications that are trying to sort of make a quick, quick impression and make a quick return, and and are not thinking about how they can have a positive impact long term, uh, has 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 raised the sort of the the perceived risk level around the blockchain, and so it's good to have uh, some. Uh, some companies like Stellar who are working to to counter that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one one um, I think is is very excited about all of the innovation that we've seen within this industry, and so there, of course, has been um, a lot of, of news. And you know, where there there is 
that attraction to the story and such. I think that, um, that, that, that news can go either way. And I think that again, just their approach has been to just do the work, you know, to just, to just get out there and do the good work that they do. So we're, we're quite impressed with them. They also um, have been chosen by IBM to, to be their, their blockchain partner for financial services. And we, we feel very strongly about IBM as well um, for a lot of reasons. And we see them as another company that is out there doing the good work and not maybe beating up as much of a media drama about it. Um, but I believe that you're going to see a lot more of these um, um, more substantive projects, um, you know, kind of come to into fruition in the next, you know, kind of year or so as, um, as we kind of weed out some of the noise from, from more of the good that's happening within the industry. That's great to hear. Uh, and it's a good segue. The last time that, uh, that we were talking together was at the RFI summit where you received, uh, you and third act received one of the support disruption for good challenge awards for sustainable cities for the, the work that we're talking about today. Can you share about uh, more about your progress uh, since then and what you're working on now for the next, for the near future? Sure, sure. So, um, so it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, we are up here in the Silicon Valley um, here in California, which is the fifth largest economy in the world. And one of the largest concentrations of small commercial real estate is actually in Los Angeles. And so we've had our eye to Los Angeles for some time but over the last few months, one of the things that we've done is really focus our attention into the city. It turns out that um, in the small commercial space um, on multifamily side, 91% of these buildings, um, 91% of all multifamily, I should say, is small. Um, then another 91% of these same buildings are over 50 years old. So we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the numbers kind of across the U.S., that, um, you know, that whole um, situation is, is certainly you know, amplified in, in Los Angeles. And so um, what's, what's interesting and different about Los Angeles is that it's a city that's hot and getting hotter. And UCLA has done quite a few studies on this. And that creates grid resiliency issues for LA Department of Water and Power, one of the largest utilities down there. We've actually seen this summer a number of outages firsthand. And um, part of the reason for this is, of course, that half of all households in Los Angeles rent, and the property owners have a hard time funding energy efficiency improvements in their buildings when it's the renters who pay the energy bills. So this is called the split incentive issue. And so um, there have been a number of carrots and sticks, both from the building codes and from utilities offering rebates and such, to try to address the issue. It hasn't really cracked this, um, this particular issue so much. And so um, one of the things that we're doing now is we are now working with property owners where we can provide non-debt financing um, for energy efficiency improvements. The utility, of course, um, provides rebates. And together, this means that property owners actually can get paid to upgrade their buildings. So um, we believe that this kind of cracks the split incentive issue, um, enabling not only for, um, for the grid to, um, to be more resilient, it also means that the tenants get to save um, on their energy costs, 
driving more of, um, of their spending into the local economy. So you can begin to see kind of the, the spillover effects that just, just investing in energy efficiency can have, you know, on a neighborhood. And um, what we believe is that this is a model that not only we can replicate, not only across Los Angeles, but across the state, across the U.S., and even into international markets. So it's something that we um, are intending um, to gather data on um, initially and then um, begin to develop out this model into something that, um, that is hopefully going to scale um, across out into these other areas. That's great. A lot of these issues are only going to get worse as, as the effects of climate change intensify. And, and you know, California is uh, one of the harder hit areas in the U.S. and there's other places in the world that are going to be, I think, keenly keenly interested to see how, how your non-debt financing model works. So uh, congratulations again on, on the support disruption for Good Challenge. And thank you for sharing uh, about Third Act today. Oh, thank you so much. Blake, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, you can find the link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed, at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me, at Sharing Risk. If you have suggestions for future guests for the podcast, please drop us an email to info at rfi-foundation.org or tweet it to us, at RFI Foundation. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.